Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me. Three short stories tonight that amply fill our time together, so I will give the briefest of introductions. H. H. Monroe, or Saki, who wrote in the Edwardian Age, was a satirist and author with a taste for the witty and outrageous. A master of the short story, Saki entertains like few other writers do at the first reading. I hope you will agree that the following stories also give an idea of the sheer beauty and ease of Saki's language. Enjoy. The Storyteller by Saki It was a hot afternoon, and the railway carriage was correspondingly sultry. The occupants of the carriage were a small girl, and a smaller girl, and a small boy. An aunt, belonging to the children, occupied the compartment. Most of the aunt's remarks seemed to begin with don't, and nearly all of the children's remarks began with why. The bachelor said nothing out loud. Don't, Cyril, don't, exclaimed the aunt, as the small boy began smacking the cushions of the seat, producing a cloud of dust at each blow. Come and look out the window, she added. The child moved reluctantly to the window. Why are those sheep being driven out of that field? he asked. I expect they are being driven to another field where there is more grass, said the aunt weakly. But there's lots of grass in that field, protested the boy. There's nothing else but grass there, aunt. There's lots of grass in that field. Perhaps the grass in the other field is better, suggested the aunt fatuously. Why is it better? came the swift, inevitable question. The frown on the bachelor's face was deepening to a scowl. The smaller girl created a diversion by beginning to recite on the road to Mandalay. She only knew the first line. She repeated it over and over again, on the road to Mandalay. "'Come over here and listen to a story,' said the aunt. The children moved listlessly toward the aunt's end of the carriage. She began a story about a little girl who was good, and who made friends with everyone on account of her goodness, and was finally saved from a mad bull by a number of rescuers who admired her moral character. "'Would they have saved her if she hadn't been good?' demanded the bigger of the small girls. It was exactly the question that the bachelor had wanted to ask. "'Well, yes,' admitted the aunt lamely. "'But I don't think they would have run quite so fast to her help if they had not liked her so much.' "'It's the stupidest story I've ever heard,' said the bigger of the small girls with immense conviction. "'I didn't listen after the first bit it was so stupid,' said Cyril. The smaller girl made no actual comment on the story, but she had long ago recommenced a murmured repetition of her favorite line. "'You don't seem to be a success as a storyteller,' said the bachelor suddenly from the corner. "'Perhaps you would like to tell them a story,' was the aunt's retort. "'Tell us a story,' demanded the bigger of the small girls. "'Once upon a time,' began the bachelor, "'there was a little girl called Bertha, who was extraordinarily good.' The children's momentarily aroused interest began at once to flicker. She did all that she was told. She was always truthful. She kept her clothes clean, learned her lessons perfectly, and was polite in her manners. "'Was she pretty?' asked the bigger of the small girls. "'Not as pretty as any of you,' said the bachelor. "'But she was horribly good.' There was a wave of reaction in favor of the story. 
The word horrible in connection with goodness was a novelty that commended itself. She was so good, continued the bachelor, that she won several medals for goodness, which she always wore pinned onto her dress. There was a medal for obedience, another medal for punctuality, and a third for good behavior. They were large metal medals, and they clanked against one another as she walked. No other child in the town where she lived had as many as three medals, so that everybody knew she must be an extra good child. "'Horribly good,' quoted Cyril. Everybody talked about her goodness, and the prince of the country got to hear about it, and he said that, as she was so very good, she might be allowed once a week to walk in his park, which was just outside the town. It was a beautiful park, and no children were ever allowed in it, so it was a great honor for Bertha to be allowed to go there. "'Were there any sheep in the park?' demanded Cyril. "'No,' said the bachelor. "'There were no sheep.' "'Why weren't there any sheep?' came the inevitable question, arising out of that answer. The aunt permitted herself a smile, which might almost have been described as a grin. "'There were no sheep in the park,' said the bachelor, "'because the prince's mother had once had a dream "'that her son would either be killed by a sheep "'or else by a clock falling on him. "'For that reason the prince never kept a sheep in his park "'or a clock in his palace.' "'The aunt suppressed a gasp of admiration. "'Was the prince killed by a sheep or a clock?' asked Cyril. "'He is still alive, so we can't tell whether the dream will come true.' said the bachelor unconcernedly. Anyway, there were no sheep in the park, but there were lots of little pigs running all over the place. What color were they? Black with white faces, white with black spots, black all over, gray with white patches, and some were white all over. The storyteller paused to let a full idea of the park's treasures sink into the children's imaginations. Then he resumed. Bertha was rather sorry to find that there were no flowers in the park. She had promised her aunts, with tears in her eyes, that she would not pick any of the kind prince's flowers, and she had meant to keep her promise, so of course it made her feel silly to find that there were no flowers to pick. Why weren't there any flowers? Because the pigs had eaten them all, said the bachelor promptly. The gardeners had told the prince that you couldn't have pigs and flowers, so he decided to have pigs and no flowers. There was a murmur of approval at the excellence of the prince's decision. So many people would have decided the other way. Bertha walked up and down, and enjoyed herself immensely, and thought to herself, "'If I were not so extraordinarily good, I should not have been allowed to come into this beautiful park and enjoy all that there is to be seen in it.' and her three medals clanked against one another as she walked and helped to remind her how very good she really was. Just then an enormous wolf came prowling into the park to see if it could catch a fat little pig for supper. "'What color was it?' asked the children, amid an immediate quickening of interest. "'Mud color all over, with a black tongue and pale gray eyes that gleamed with unspeakable ferocity.' The first thing that it saw in the park was Bertha. Her pinafore was so spotlessly white and clean it could be seen from a great distance. Bertha saw the wolf and saw that it was stealing towards her, and she began to wish that she had never been allowed to come into the park. She ran as hard as she could, and the wolf came after her with huge leaps and bounds. 
she managed to reach a shrubbery of myrtle bushes, and she hid herself in one of the thickest of the bushes. The wolf came sniffing among the branches, its black tongue lolling out of its mouth, and its pale gray eyes glaring with rage. Bertha was terribly frightened, and thought to herself, "'If I had not been so extraordinarily good, I should have been safe in the town at this moment.' However, the scent of the myrtle was so strong that the wolf could not sniff out where Bertha was hiding, and so he thought he might as well go off and catch a little pig instead. Bertha was trembling very much at having the wolf prowling and sniffing so near her, and as she trembled, the medal for obedience clanked against the medals for good conduct and punctuality. The wolf was just moving away when he heard the sound of the medals clanking and stopped to listen. They clanked again in a bush quite near him. He dashed into the bush, his pale gray eyes gleaming with ferocity and triumph, and dragged Bertha out and devoured her to the last morsel. All that was left of her were her shoes, bits of clothing, and the three medals for goodness. Were any of the little pigs killed? No, they all escaped. The story began badly, said the smaller of the small girls, but it had a beautiful ending. It is the most beautiful story that I ever heard, said the bigger of the small girls with immense decision. It is the only beautiful story I have ever heard, said Cyril. A dissentient opinion came from the aunt. A most improper story to tell young children. You have undermined the effects of years of careful training. At any rate, said the bachelor, collecting his belongings preparatory to leaving the carriage, I kept them quiet for ten minutes, which was more than you were able to do. Mrs. Packletide's Tiger It was Mrs. Packletide's pleasure and intention that she should shoot a tiger. Not that the lust to kill had suddenly descended on her, or that she felt that she would leave India safer and more wholesome than she had found it, with one fraction less of wild beast per million of inhabitants. The compelling motive of her sudden devotion towards the footsteps of Nimrod was the fact that Luna Bimberton had recently been carried eleven miles in an aeroplane by an Algerian aviator and talked of nothing else. Only a personally procured tiger skin and a heavy harvest of press photographs could successfully counter that sort of thing. Mrs. Packletide had already arranged in her mind the lunch she would give at her house in Curzon Street, ostensibly in Luna Bimberton's honor, with a tiger-skin rug occupying most of the foreground and all of the conversation. She had also already designed in her mind the tiger-claw brooch that she was going to give Luna Bimberton on her next birthday. In a world that is supposed to be chiefly swayed by hunger and by love, Mrs. Packletide was an exception. Her movements and motives were largely governed by dislike of Luna Bimberton. Circumstances proved propitious. Mrs. Packletide had offered a thousand rupees for the opportunity of shooting a tiger without overmuch risk or exertion and it so happened that a neighboring village could boast of being the favored rendezvous of an animal of respectable antecedents which had been driven by the increasing infirmities of age to abandon game-killing and confined its appetite to the smaller domestic animals. 
The prospect of earning the thousand rupees had stimulated the sporting and commercial instinct of the villagers. Children were posted night and day on the outskirts of the local jungle to head the tiger back in the unlikely event of his attempting to roam away to fresh hunting grounds, and the cheaper kind of goats were left about with elaborate carelessness to keep him satisfied with his present quarters. The one great anxiety was lest he should die of old age before the date appointed for the Mem Sahib's shoot. Mothers carrying their babies home through the jungle after the day's work in the fields hushed their singing lest they might curtail the restful sleep of the venerable herd-robber. The great night duly arrived, moonlit and cloudless. A platform had been constructed in a comfortable and conveniently placed tree, and thereupon crouched Mrs. Packletide and her paid companion, Miss Mebbin. A goat, gifted with a particularly persistent bleat, such as even a partially deaf tiger might be reasonably expected to hear on a still night, was tethered at the correct distance. With an accurately sighted rifle and a thumbnail pack of patience cards, the sportswoman awaited the coming of the quarry. "'I suppose we are in some danger,' said Miss Mebbin. She was not actually nervous about the wild beast, but she had a morbid dread of performing an atom more service than she had been paid for. "'Nonsense,' said Mrs. Packletide. "'It is a very old tiger. It couldn't spring up here even if it wanted to. If it's an old tiger, I think you ought to get it cheaper. A thousand rupees is a lot of money.' Louisa Mebbin adopted a protective elder-sister attitude towards money in general, irrespective of nationality or denomination. Her energetic intervention had saved many a rouble from dissipating itself in tips in some Moscow hotel, and Franks and Santimes clung to her instinctively under circumstances which would have driven them headlong from less sympathetic hands. Her speculations as to the market depreciation of tiger remnants were cut short by the appearance on the scene of the animal itself. As soon as it caught sight of the tethered goat, it lay flat on the earth, seemingly less from a desire to take advantage of all available cover than for the purpose of snatching a short rest before commencing the grand attack. "'I believe it's ill,' said Louisa Mebbin loudly in Hindustani for the benefit of the village headman who was in ambush in a neighboring tree." "'Hush!' said Mrs. Packletide, and at that moment the tiger commenced ambling towards his victim. "'Now! Now!' urged Miss Mebbin with some excitement. "'If he doesn't touch the goat, we needn't pay for it.' The bait was an extra. The rifle flashed out with a loud report, and the great tawny beast sprang to one side and then rolled over in the stillness of death." In a moment, a crowd of excited natives had swarmed onto the scene, and their shouting speedily carried the glad news to the village, where a thumping of tom-toms took up the chorus of triumph. And their triumph and rejoicing found a ready echo in the heart of Mrs. Packletide. Already that luncheon party in Curzon Street seemed immeasurably nearer. It was Louisa Mebbin who drew attention to the fact that the goat was in death throes from a mortal bullet wound, while no trace of the rifle's deadly work could be found on the tiger. Evidently, the wrong animal had been hit, and the beast of prey had succumbed to heart failure caused by the sudden report of the rifle 
accentuated by senile decay. Mrs. Packletide was pardonably annoyed at the discovery, but, at any rate, she was the possessor of a dead tiger, and the villagers, anxious for their thousand rupees, gladly connived at the fiction that she had shot the beast. And Miss Mebbin was a paid companion. Therefore did Mrs. Packletide face the cameras with a light heart, and her pictured frame reached from the pages of the Texas Weekly Snapshot to the illustrated Monday supplement of the Novoi Vremia. As for Luna Bimberton, she refused to look at an illustrated paper for weeks, and her letter of thanks for the gift of a tiger-claw brooch was a model of repressed emotions. The luncheon party she declined. There are limits beyond which repressed emotions become dangerous. From Curzon Street, the tiger-skin rug traveled down to the manor house and was duly inspected and admired by the county, and it seemed a fitting and appropriate thing when Mrs. Packletide went to the county costume ball in the character of Diana. She refused to fall in, however, with Clovis's tempting suggestion of a primeval dance party at which everyone should wear the skins of beasts they had recently slain. "'I should be in rather a baby-bunting condition,' confessed Clovis, with a miserable rabbit-skin or two to wrap up in. "'But then,' he added, with a rather malicious glance at Diana's proportions, "'my figure is quite as good as that Russian dancing-boy's.' "'How amused everyone would be if they knew what really happened,' said Louisa Mebbin a few days after the ball. "'What do you mean?' asked Mrs. Packletide quickly. "'How you shot the goat!' "'and frightened the tiger to death,' said Miss Mebbin, "'with her disagreeably pleasant laugh. "'No one would believe it,' said Mrs. Packletide, "'her face changing colour as rapidly "'as though it were going through a book of patterns before post-time. "'Luna Bimberton would,' said Miss Mebbin. "'Mrs. Packletide's face settled on an unbecoming shade of greenish-white. "'You surely wouldn't give me away?' she asked. "'I've seen a weekend cottage near Dorking that I should rather like to buy,' said Miss Mebbin, with seeming irrelevance. Six hundred and eighty freehold. Quite a bargain, only I don't happen to have the money.' Louisa Mebbin's pretty weekend cottage, christened by her Les Fauves, and gay in summertime with its garden borders of tiger lilies, is the wonder and admiration of her friends.' It is a marvel how Louisa manages to do it, is the general verdict. Mrs. Packletide indulges in no more big-game shooting. The incidental expenses are so heavy, she confides to inquiring friends. The Schartz Metterklum Method Lady Carlotta stepped out onto the platform of the small wayside station and took a turn or two up and down its uninteresting length to kill time till the train should be pleased to proceed on its way. Then, in the roadway beyond, she saw a horse struggling with a more than ample load and a carter of the sort that seems to bear a sullen hatred against the animal that helps him to earn a living. Lady Carlotta promptly betook her to the roadway and put rather a different complexion on the struggle. Certain of her acquaintances were wont to give her plentiful admonition as to the undesirability of interfering on behalf of a distressed animal, 
such interference being none of her business. Only once had she put the doctrine of non-interference into practice, when one of its most eloquent exponents had been besieged for nearly three hours in a small and extremely uncomfortable may-tree by an angry boar pig, while Lady Carlotta, on the other side of the fence, had proceeded with the watercolor sketch she was engaged on, and refused to interfere between the boar and his prisoner. It is to be feared that she lost the friendship of the ultimately rescued lady. On this occasion she merely lost the train, which gave way to the first sign of impatience it had shown throughout the journey, and steamed off without her. She bore the desertion with philosophical indifference. Her friends and relations were thoroughly well used to the fact of her luggage arriving without her. She wired a vague, non-committal message to her destination to say that she was coming on by another train. Before she had time to think what her next move might be, she was confronted by an imposingly attired lady who seemed to be taking a prolonged mental inventory of her clothes and looks. "'You must be Miss Hope, the governess I've come to meet,' said the apparition in a tone that admitted of very little argument. "'Very well, if I must, I must,' said Lady Carlotta to herself, with dangerous meekness. "'I am Mrs. Quabal,' continued the lady. "'And where, pray, is your luggage?' "'It's gone astray,' said the alleged governess, falling in with the excellent rule of life that the absent are always to blame. The luggage had, in point of fact, behaved with perfect correctitude. "'I've just telegraphed about it,' she added, with a nearer approach to truth. "'How provoking!' said Mrs. Quabal. "'These railway companies are so careless. However, my maid can lend you things for the night.' And she led the way to her car. During the drive to the Quabal mansion, Lady Carlotta was impressively introduced to the nature of the charges that had been thrust upon her. She learned that Claude and Wilfrid were delicate, sensitive young people, that Irene had the artistic temperament highly developed, and that Viola was something or other else of a mould equally commonplace among children of that class and type in the twentieth century. "'I wish them not only to be taught,' said Mrs. Quaval, "'but interested in what they learn.' In their history lessons, for instance, you must try to make them feel that they are being introduced to the life stories of men and women who really lived, not merely committing a mass of names and dates to memory. French, of course, I shall expect you to talk at mealtimes several days in the week. I shall talk French four days of the week, and Russian in the remaining three. Russian? My dear Miss Hope, no one in the house speaks or understands Russian. "'That will not embarrass me in the least,' said Lady Carlotta coldly. Mrs. Quabal, to use a colloquial expression, was knocked off her perch. She was one of those imperfectly self-assured individuals who are magnificent and autocratic as long as they are not seriously opposed. The least show of unexpected resistance goes a long way towards rendering them cowed and apologetic.' When the new governess failed to express wondering admiration of the large, newly purchased and expensive car, and lightly alluded to the superior advantages of one or two makes which had just been put on the market, the discomfiture of her patroness became almost abject. 
Her feelings were those which might have animated a general of ancient warfaring days on beholding his heaviest battle-elephant ignominiously driven off the field by slingers and javelin-throwers. At dinner that evening, though reinforced by her husband, who usually duplicated her opinions and lent her moral support generally, Mrs. Quabal regained none of her lost ground. The governess not only helped herself well and truly to wine, but held forth with considerable show of critical knowledge on various vintage matters, concerning which the Quabals were in no wise able to pose as authorities. Previous governesses had limited their conversation on the wine topic to a respectful and doubtless sincere expression of a preference for water. When this one went as far as to recommend a wine-firm in whose hands you could not go very far wrong, Mrs. Quobal thought it time to turn the conversation into more usual channels. "'We got very satisfactory references about you from Canon Teep,' she observed. "'A very estimable man, I should think. "'Drinks like a fish and beats his wife, otherwise a very lovable character,' said the governess imperturbably. "'My dear Miss Hope, I trust you are exaggerating.' exclaimed the Quabals in unison. "'One must, in justice, admit that there is some provocation,' continued the romancer. "'Mrs. Teep is quite the most irritating bridge-player that I have ever sat down with. Her leads and declarations would condone a certain amount of brutality in her partner. But to souse her with the contents of the only soda-water siphon in the house on a Sunday afternoon when one couldn't get another—' argues an indifference to the comfort of others which I cannot altogether overlook. You may think me hasty in my judgments, but it was practically on account of the siphon incident that I left. "'We will talk of this some other time,' said Mrs. Quabal hastily. "'I shall never allude to it again,' said the governess with decision. Mr. Quabal made a welcome diversion by asking what studies the new instructors proposed to inaugurate on the morrow. "'History, to begin with,' she informed him. "'Ah, history,' he observed sagely. "'Now, in teaching them history, you must take care to interest them in what they learn. You must make them feel that they are being introduced to the life-stories of men and women who really lived.' "'I've told her all that,' interposed Mrs. Quabal. "'I teach history on the Schartz-Metaclume method,' said the governess loftily. "'Ah, yes,' said her listeners, thinking it expedient to assume an acquaintance, at least with the name. "'What are you children doing out there?' demanded Mrs. Quabal the next morning, on finding Irene sitting rather glumly at the head of the stairs, while her sister was perched in an attitude of depressed discomfort on the window-seat behind her, with a wolf-skin rug almost covering her. "'We are having a history lesson,' came the unexpected reply." I am supposed to be Rome, and Viola up there is the she-wolf. Not a real wolf, but the figure of one that the Romans used to set store by. I forget why. Claude and Wilfred have gone to fetch the shabby women. The shabby women? Yes, they've got to carry them off. They didn't want to, but Miss Hope got one of Father's five bats and said she'd give them a number nine spanking if they didn't. So they've gone to do it. A loud, angry screaming from the direction of the lawn drew Mrs. Quabal thither in hot haste, fearful lest the threatened castigation might even now be in process of infliction. 
The outcry, however, came principally from the two small daughters of the lodgekeeper, who were being hauled and pushed towards the house by the panting and dishevelled Claude and Wilfred, whose task was rendered even more arduous by the incessant, if not very effectual, attacks of the captured maiden's small brother. The governess, fives bat in hand, sat negligently on the stone balustrade, presiding over the scene with the cold impartiality of a goddess of battles. A furious and repeated chorus of, "'I'll tell mother!' rose from the lodge children, but the lodge mother, who was hard of hearing, was for the moment immersed in the preoccupation of her wash-tub. After an apprehensive glance in the direction of the lodge, the good woman was gifted with a highly militant temper, which is sometimes the privilege of deafness, Mrs. Quabal flew indignantly to the rescue of the struggling captives. "'Wilfred! Claude! Let those children go at once! Miss Hope! What on earth is the meaning of this?' "'Early Roman history. The Sabine women. Don't you know? It's the Schartz-Metterklum method to make children understand history by acting it themselves. Fixes it in their memory, you know.' Of course, if, thanks to your interference, the boys go through life thinking that the Sabine women ultimately escaped, I really cannot be held responsible. You may be very clever and modern, Miss Hope, said Miss Quaval firmly, but I should like you to leave here by the next train. Your luggage will be sent after you as soon as it arrives. I am not certain exactly where I shall be for the next few days, said the dismissed instructress of youth. You might keep my luggage till I wire my address— there are only a couple of trunks and some golf clubs and a leopard cub. A leopard cub? gasped Mrs. Quabal. Even in her departure, this extraordinary person seemed destined to leave a trail of embarrassment behind her. Well, it's rather left off being a cub. It's more than half grown, you know. A fowl every day and a rabbit on Sundays is what it usually gets. Raw beef makes it too excitable. Don't trouble about getting the car for me. I'm rather inclined for a walk. And Lady Carlotta strode out of the Corbal horizon. The advent of the genuine Miss Hope, who had made a mistake as to the day on which she was due to arrive, caused a turmoil which that good lady was quite unused to inspiring. Obviously, the Corbal family had been woefully befooled, but a certain amount of relief came with the knowledge. How tiresome for you, dear Carlotta! said her hostess, when the overdue guest ultimately arrived, how very tiresome losing your train and having to stop overnight in a strange place. Oh, dear, no, said Lady Carlotta, not at all tiresome. For me. You have been listening to three stories by H. H. Monroe, better known as Saki, the storyteller... Mrs. Packletide's Tiger, and the Schartz Metacloom Method. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, all the best. (laughs) 